All right, can we give a hand for all of our Children's Church volunteers? <laughs> Tremendous work. I especially hope your kids are in Children's Church today because this sermon is PG-13 at best. So, uh, so the Children's Church people, if you have your kids with you, this is teen-friendly, but I'm telling you, little ones, uh, you might have some uh, unwarranted questions <laughs> to answer over lunch uh, today, but, uh, but we should be fine. So um, thank you to all of our Children's Church volunteers. Uh, and I also want to just draw your attention to the next sermon series. It's called Modern Man. It's a search of modern masculinity, search for modern masculinity by looking at ancient Bible stories. It's also around Father's Day, so if you have a father uh, story that you'd like to share, if your father was absent or not around and you want to share with me what that was like growing up, or if you had a really great father you'd like to honor, or if you are a father and you want to talk about how being a father changed your life, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, so Eric, E-R-I-C, at thestoryhouston.org is the best way to get me, and just uh, send me a, a line, let's get some coffee, or just uh, type up your story and, and share it that way. Sound good? That starts in June. So you like our new setup? It's going to work. I kind of like it. feels a little cozier. And we get to leave all this stuff up forever now. Not forever, but for a long time. We don't have to do it every week. Yeah, a few of you are really, really happy about that. Uh, so that was a grind. Thank you to all of you who uh, helped make that uh, set up and tear down possible every week. I still am going to need you to stack your chairs at the end of the day service because we have to get everything on this side of the half court line so that that big dividing wall can close and the day school can use that side throughout the week. Does that make sense? All right. Cool. So... I guess I have to preach this sermon. Uh, so, sex. Uh, I think... <laughs> aren't there some more announcements? Or um, I think I'd like to start this sermon, as one does, um, by talking about uh, butts. Uh, so, bottoms. Behinds. Buttocks. You with me? Um, that's probably unlike any sermon beginning you've ever heard. But I'd like to start by talking about butts. A wise man once said, I like big butts. I cannot lie. And you other brothers, you can't deny. Sir Mix-a-Lot uh, seemed to not have a choice in the matter in terms of what makes a woman sexy. I, I don't think he ever decided to like the certain shapeliness of a woman and not others. I think he kind of came prepackaged that way. Like he came with that preference, as do, according to the latest science, and yes, there's science around this, 85 or so percent of straight men like the same things or mix a lot likes. And I've just been curious this week, like, why? What is it about that one characteristic in the female figure that so excites 85% of men? What is going on here that, that we, leaves us like powerless within the vicinity? You've seen the second look, the tacky second look men give when women walk by with a certain, you know, it's like a double take kind of thing that men do. And we think it's just guys being guys. Yeah, the second look is like part of the code. It's what it means to be a man. You, you look when it's there, whatever. Blah. 
But why? Why can't men seem to help themselves when faced with such female anatomy? Well, I look to science for the answer here, and yes, there's a recent extensive study. This public university spent years studying why men prefer large backsides. And if you ever want to know where your tax dollars are going, uh, <laughs> it's to study the behinds of a certain size and the men who love them. <laughs> And that's especially true in Texas because this study took place for years and for hundreds of thousands of dollars at the University of Texas in Austin. It's a proud moment to be a Longhorn. And they studied this and they tried to figure out why in the world men are drawn to this particular feature in a woman's body. And what they found was this. They found that men aren't actually drawn to the size of a woman's uh, uh, rear end, I suppose, but they're actually drawn to the curvature of her spine that gives her body a certain shape. And so somehow at the University of Texas, I have no idea how they did this, but they found hundreds of willing male volunteers between the age of 18 and 35, <laughs> and they showed them thousands of female figures. And they discovered that it didn't really matter how large that part was. It mattered the shape, and it didn't even really matter in that particular part, but the spinal curvature is what mattered. And they discovered over thousands of studies that, that, that uh, the ideal female curvature in her spine is something like 45.5 degrees. Uh, and so uh, that, and women are like, which one am I? Don't even worry. But like, you know, like the middle one is the one most guys got the most, you know, positive reaction to when they, when they were shown. Now, unfortunately, I like 45.5 degree spinal curvatures, and I cannot lie. It doesn't, isn't quite as radio friendly, but that's actually what men tend to look for. And so the question in the scientist's face was, why? And here's what they, they think. They think that before all the medical advances that we've got today, before all the gynecological advances that we have today, that 45.5 degree spinal curvature was the ideal uh, um, uh, spinal curvature for a woman to carry multiple pregnancies to term and to give birth to multiple children who were healthier than others, and it allowed a woman to recover quickly and speedily from the process of pregnancy and labor and delivery. A woman with that spinal curvature was able to give birth to more children more healthily and recover more quickly, they think that 45.5 degree spinal curvature. And so for most of the 200,000 years that human beings have walked the earth, scientists think a woman's ability to carry healthy pregnancies to term, to give birth to multiple children, and then to recover quickly to get back to the business of raising children and foraging for food without the help of midwives and hospitals and things we have today, that those things would have been the sexiest thing about a woman. 
That would have been the number, if, if the University of Texas had done a study 150,000 years ago, it wouldn't have been the spinal curvature that men were drawn to. It would have been the ability of women to carry pregnancies to term and give birth to healthy children. Now, we don't get this at all because we're so incredibly spoiled. We are spoiled rotten. We have no idea how good we've got it. We complain about the stupidest things when 97% of human beings who've ever lived in the history of humankind would trade places with us in a heartbeat. 98, 99% would. You understand? Like, we complain about traffic. We complain about the commute to work when for 97% of human beings who've ever lived, the commute to work involved, you know, running from mountain lions and, and you know, avoiding enemy tribes and, you know, random diseases that would kill you. You know, we complain about things. We, most of us are going to die on our bed at home or in a hospital or in a nursing home. We're going to be remotely comfortable and surrounded by family, and we're going to breathe our last breath, and that's it. 97% of human beings who've ever lived died with some animal's teeth around their neck and with some enemy tribe's you know, arrow in their chest and died of some infection that we go and treat with penicillin before taking to Facebook to complain about having to wait for 15 minutes at Walgreens to get our penicillin. 97% of people who've ever lived would put you in a shallow grave to take your place in line at Walgreens. And so we have a different perspective today than, uh, than people had before us. And here's what scientists think who did this study. Scientists say that over 200,000 years time, cavemen, nomads, and hunter-gatherer types, they preferred women with that 45.5 degree spinal curvature because it gave their family a little better chance of survival. Your chances were a little less bad of making it in your generations after you making it if your wife had a 45.5 degree spinal curvature. Now, it wasn't because of how she looked in a dress wasn't because of how it moved when she walked. Wasn't because of how hot she looks when she twerks. Our ancestors preferred this as a survival mechanism because every day was a struggle to survive. That's where we get this notion from. So, back in the day, because a woman's spinal curvature made it easier for her to give birth to multiple children, it meant that one day she could give birth to your 10th child, and then the next day she could get up from that and go out and find nuts and berries while breastfeeding multiple children and looking out for mountain lions and enemy tribes all at the same time. Okay? So guys, when you reduce a woman's worth down to her body type, when you give or impute a woman's value based on how looking at her figure 
makes you feel. Guys, when you take that obligatory second look, you're not just being a man, you're being a caveman. You're being a Neanderthal. You're being a nomadic hunter-gatherer who belonged on the earth 150,000 years ago. You're not being a man. That is not how things work anymore. You're selecting a mate based on caveman principles and instincts that don't even apply anymore. And women, I'm not going to let you off the hook because you're not that much better either. So, Guys, breathe easy for a moment. Women, studies show, tend to look for the strong, silent type. You know, like scientists show that women at their most primal urges, they look for the man with the intense eyes and the strong jawline and the five o'clock shadow hairiness and the and the strong muscles, because there was a time, for most of human history, there were times when intense eyes and strong muscles and a big jawline would benefit you, women. It would protect you from incoming tribes or from mountain lions or whatever it was. There was a time when this worked for you. But even now, you still fight the same instincts, the same primal urges. You turn down great men who don't have the jawline you're instinctively looking for. And you end up with guys that look like this that treat you like dirt because you think that's what you're supposed to be doing. You're living on instincts that don't benefit you anymore. And studies show that when women are, are most fertile, that they look for this type of person even more. And guys, I'm just going to give you a tip. Don't take your wife to see Mad Max, Fury Road. <laughs> Tom Hardy will not do your marriage any favors. Maybe he will. I don't know. But you, you just got to be careful with Tom Hardy. Can I get an amen? <laughs> All right. So... My question as we talk about sex today is how much longer are we going to think and talk about sex as if we're Neanderthals? How much longer are we going to allow this conversation to go on as if we are cavemen, cavewomen? How much longer are we going to act on impulses that have nothing to do with our lives today, with the conversations we should be having today? We know, deep down, we know that sex isn't just physical. We know that we're not struggling for survival and we don't need progeny like people once did. We know that sex isn't just recreation. We know it's not just like we're animals. We know this. That's why we as humans most frequently make love face to face, unlike any other creature on the planet. We know there's more going on than just procreation. We know there's something deeply spiritual about this act. We know that's why when we go out of line and do something we shouldn't do, there's shame there. We know that, that there's more happening than just the physical. That's why we punish sex crimes more severely than regular crimes. That's why when a child is beaten by a parent, it's awful. But when a child is molested, sexually assaulted, that touches a nerve in us that's even deeper. There's something more going on. We know that it is sacred. We know that it is spiritual. We know that it is essential to your uh, deepest identity. Um, your sexuality is a sacred thing. You know this deep down. 
You know you're not a Neanderthal sexually. And yet, here we are in 2015, and every other song on the radio sounds like it was written by a caveman. And we sing them. <laughs> we sing every one of them guilty, all right? Why? Why do we still look at sex in this way. Now, for centuries, sociologists have predicted that as we get more sophisticated as a society and as we get wealthier and more educated, our struggles with certain sexual urges, they will just go by the wayside. We, we're not going to have to worry with sexual temptations anymore as we get smarter and richer. The uh, sociologist from Britain, John Stuart Mill, in 1873, uh, shared this quote with us. He said, I think it quite probable that this particular passion will become with men as it already is with a larger number of women, completely under the control of human reason. Whoops. I mean, he could not be more wrong. Societies that get more sophisticated and smarter and wealthier, they don't get a better handle on sexuality. They don't have a higher view of sexuality. In fact, the more privilege there is in any given society, it seems as though the more twisted and perverse the sexual desires become. And this seems to be a truism across human cultures. As we get wealthier, uh, we get a little uh, more out of control with our sexual cravings, which, given that we are living in the wealthiest, most sophisticated nation to ever, uh, you know, to ever be, that's why it maddens me even more that the church in America has so little to say to Christians about sex. We have so little that's helpful to say to the members of our churches when it comes to human sexuality. Most of us who grew up in the church, if we heard anything about sex when we grew up in church, it was basically don't. Don't do it. Because pregnancy, because STDs, you're a child of the 80s like me, because AIDS, because... God won't love you anymore, and that's a stretch, but the whole thing about hell was real. Like, you will go to hell if you do that before you get married. That was kind of the extent of my Christian sexual education, and many people, I think, uh, share that experience, if not worse. I remember going to Baptist youth group when I was in high school, and I remember hearing this, uh, this youth pastor tell us as teenagers the story of this couple of teenagers and I don't know if this really happened or not, but he told it like it happened. And he said, this couple of teenagers, they went out in his car together and they parked and they made out together. And then after they were done making out together, they were driving home and a train hit their car and killed them both. And he told us, he told us, those two young people had to go to hell because they didn't have a chance to repent. This stuff is real, y'all. Y'all don't believe me. Because in Methodist church, we don't always say things like this. Methodist church, we don't say much of anything. <laughs> but this stuff, it's out there, man. But do you think it made a bit of difference in the lives of us, our, uh, the youth at the time? Do you think it meant anyone who was making out before stopped making out? No. Here's what happened. The next time my girlfriend and I were in my truck making out, and we were done making out, she handed me the keys, and she gave me a wink, and she said, hey, watch out for those trains on the way home. Why? Because it was a joke. The church was a joke when it came to sex. 
And we saw right through it. We were smart enough to see it for what it was. It was fear-driven. It was guilt-driven. It was about controlling the sexuality of young people. And we saw right through it, and it made no difference. If anything, the, the, the prohibitiveness of Christian education can cause young people to act out even more. And young people are seeing through it today even more than my generation was um, back then. Um, um, so I think we have to do better. This problem the church has with messaging around human sexuality is not new, but it's not true to our roots. And so I want you to distinguish the roots of Christianity and this book it itself and the person of God as shown in this book from what you understand the church to believe about sexuality because those two things are very different. So I think we started getting off track in our messaging about sex around the, the uh, 4th and 5th centuries, late 4th century, early 5th century. This is where we start to see things going off the rails with what the, sec the church said about sex. And so it starts with a guy I really like, St. Augustine. You've heard of St. Augustine? Theology nerds call him Augustine. St. Augustine was uh, influential bishop in the late 4th century, early 5th century. And I like almost everything the guy has to say, but I think in terms of his sexual theology, he is overcompensating for his own guilt and shame that he brought to the Christian faith, because he wasn't a Christian until adulthood, and, and middle age, really, adulthood. And before that, he was a freak. He slept with half of, you know, uh, North Africa. Like, he, he had many sexual exploits. He writes about his sexual temptations. He visited brothels and prostitutes. And when he comes to Jesus late in life, he brings all that guilt and shame to Jesus with him. And because he's such a gifted leader, he rises through the ranks quickly, becomes one of the two most influential Christian leaders in the fourth and fifth centuries. And for good reason. He said many, many good things, wrote awesome books, but when it comes to sex, the dude was a little... He wasn't infallible, right? He, he was the first one to say that sex, for the, any other purpose than uh, procreation, is sin. Okay? No one else in the 400-year history of the church had ever said that. That's nowhere to be found in this book. Augustine, uh, Augustine was the first to say that sex for any other purpose than procreation was sin. He also said, O oh Lord, give me chastity and give me sobriety. Just not yet. <laughs> I love that quote from Augustine. Um, but after he comes to Jesus, he says, sex is a sin. Now, the other influential Christian leader of the day was Jerome. St. Jerome was also uh, on Augustine's uh, bandwagon. And he comes along uh, just after Augustine, and they were kind of contemporaries, and he picks up where Augustine had left off. And Jerome says that the only good thing about the marriage bed is that it produces the world more virgins. Think about that. You ever read that in here? No, because it's not in here. Jerome had this impression that sex is dirty, that it is part of human fallenness. It is part of original sin. At one point, Jerome even said 
that any man who is too passionate a lover, even with his own wife, is himself an adulterer. Y'all hear that? Any man who's too passionate a lover, even with his own wife, is himself an adulterer. There are men in the room leaning over and going, guess I better tone it down a little bit. (laughs) And there are women in the room thinking, no, I think you're good. (laughs) (laughs) These ideas, I don't know where they came from. They came from this guilt-riddled sort of period within Christian history, and they just stuck. They stuck around for a thousand years. Between the year 400 and 1400, the church's theology and teaching on sex was just crazy. It was during that period. It was, you know, it it wasn't until the 1100s that priests were told to be celibate. Do you know that it wasn't until the 11 or 1200s that women were told they can't sing in church anymore because it's too tempting for the men in the room? There was a time in Christian history when on Thursdays, sex was prohibited for Christians in honor of Christ's death. On Fridays, you couldn't have sex in honor. Oh, wait, Thursdays in honor of his arrest. Friday in, term, in honor of Christ's death. On Saturdays, you couldn't have sex in honor of the Blessed Virgin Mary. On Sundays, married Christians couldn't have sex in honor of the departed saints. Wednesdays were still good. That's why they call Wednesday. Never mind. And then <laughs> there were the 40-day periods before Christmas, before Easter, before Pentecost, when sex was strictly prohibited. There was a time, there was a time in Christian history when for 321 days a year, Christians were not allowed to have sex. That only left 44 days a year for married Christians to have sexual relations with their spouse. That's why they call it the Dark Ages, I guess. Now, things have changed some, but not enough. We still give people the wrong idea about what our God says about sex. We still give young people the wrong idea that sex is bad or dirty or sinful or something they can't talk about openly. At church, we still give young people the impression that it's about fear and control. We still tell them things, whether we're saying it with our words or not, we're still saying that God will think less of them or that we will think less of them if they're active sexually before they're ready or before they're married. We still give them, young people, the same old lines. And I see us especially doing two things today. We condescend young men and we objectify young women. We condescend young men. I'll talk about that first. So, a while back, not long ago, there was a Christian blogger who wrote this article about yoga pants. Did y'all see this? Okay, so she was talking to her husband one day, and her husband told her that when he sees women at the grocery store wearing yoga pants, it makes it difficult for him to focus on grocery shopping. <laughs> he feels too tempted by what he sees. He can't help looking and looking again. And so this woman, uh, his wife, she decides that, well, maybe she's giving other men that same struggle at the grocery store. And so she promises on her blog to never wear yoga pants again in public. And uh, Christians everywhere applauded her 
for her faithfulness and her modesty. And while I respect this woman's desire to wear whatever she wants to wear, she's got every right to wear whatever she feels is appropriate at the grocery store or anywhere else. As a Christian man, I'm offended. Every man in here should be offended. Because just like most Christians I've heard on the topic, this woman's assertion is that we are just powerless as men. We are just animals. And if there's a woman in the room with yoga pants on, there is nothing that will stop us from looking at her like a piece of meat. And I find that offensive as a man. Men, we are not cavemen anymore. Men, we are not animals anymore. And I know that you've struggled, some of you, with this in the past, but this idea, I mean, I, I heard um, like Christian people online, which you never want to pay attention to what Christians say online, but I heard like, especially the comment sections, but look, people were saying, you know, maybe, like, maybe the Amish have it right and maybe some Muslim communities have it right. Maybe women should just be covering everything up to protect men from our own sexual misgivings and I just can't buy that, men. We're not cavemen. You, men, you're sons of the living God. You're followers of Christ whose power dwells in you. Christ gives you the power and the wherewithal, the ability to look a woman in the eye and see a sister, to see an equal, to not be the way maybe you used to be, not a powerless slaves, sons of God who can look at women no matter what kind of pants she wears, and see a beloved daughter of your father. I, I just can't take much more of the condescension that we give young men especially. Sex is not your kryptonite. Okay, yoga pants are not <laughs> your kryptonite. You're better than that, and you know it. So we condescend men and we objectify women. Women, you are no longer anyone's property, like maybe women were in the past. You are no longer a commodity to be valued, bought, and sold on the open market. You're worth infinitely more than anyone could ever pay for you with their time or their attention or their money. You, especially Christian women, are no longer damsels in distress in need of rescue. You don't need some strong-jawed, intense-eyed, big-muscled guy to come and protect you anymore. You are daughters of Almighty God, friends of Christ, whose power dwells within you, women. And I've got to say this because, Lord, we get this wrong. Churches, Christians, we have to do better. I need you to hear me for a second. A woman who has had sex is no less valuable than a woman who hasn't. I need these words to, to be absorbed today. I need you to hear this. A woman who's had sex multiple times with multiple people is no less worthy of love than someone who's a virgin. 
I heard all these stories this week that just haunted me about how this one time I was in Sunday school, and then the Sunday school teacher told us that every time a girl has sex, it's like taking a, robe, a rose and plucking off one of the petals. Who wants a petal? And who wants a rose that has all the petals pulled off? Another woman, just before the service, she walked by and said, I have to share this story with you, Eric. She said, my Sunday school teacher took a box of cookies and took one cookie out of the box and touched it and right in front of us, put it all over her hands. And then she put that cookie back in the box and she passed the cookies around the room after that. And all the kids took all the other cookies except for the one that she had touched. And after it came back around, she took the cookie that she had touched before and said, why did no one want this cookie? Because others had touched it. Caveman thinking. It is not how sexuality works. Your worth has nothing to do with your sexual past. Your worth comes entirely from having been created in the image of God. Do not let anyone, especially any Christian, tell you that your sexual past defines you or determines your value. You are daughters of Almighty God and friends of Christ. And here's why this matters. It doesn't matter because it's my opinion. It matters because the Bible's God is wildly pro-sex. Okay? Probably not something you've ever heard in church before, but God made sex. He did it. He created your body to enjoy sex. It wasn't the devil that stitched those nerve endings into certain parts of your body that give you crazy pleasure. That was God that did it. God wants you to have sex. Could you look at your neighbor and say, God wants me. I'm just saying, don't, don't look at your neighbor. But, like, <laughs> God wants you to have a lot of it. Really good sex. God wants that for you. Okay? God designed you for that purpose. And so, you know, our culture is obsessed with eroticism, erotic literature and movies and stuff. If you want some real eroticism in your life, go home today, turn down the lights, turn off HBO, uh, shut your laptop, and open this book to Song of Songs and be amazed by the Word of God. If you're ready for all this, because look, it's some serious business happening in Song of Songs. The two lovers, they talk about uh, each other's lips and eyes and abdomens and breasts and bodily fluids and all this stuff in the Word of God that is not meant to be a metaphor. I can't even read chapter 5 of this book. I'll get fired from being a pastor for reading the Bible, that part of it anyway, in church. I'm telling you, the Bible's God loves sex. It's one of his greatest gifts for you. God wants you to enjoy it. But, ah, that's a bad choice of words. Uh, however, however, <laughs> because it is such an awesome gift and because you know it's more than just physical and more than just recreation, we have to be careful. Open your Bibles with me, if you will, or get out your phones and your Bible apps, and we're going to be in 1 Corinthians for the rest of our time together um, real quickly. 1 Corinthians 5 is where I'll start. I'm going to be in 5 and 6, okay? 1 Corinthians 5, 1. 
This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. He says, everyone has heard there is sexual immorality among you. A man is having sex with his father's wife, and you're proud of it. So, okay, there's a man having sex with his stepmom in the church in Corinth. And this is a scandal. And so Paul is writing to address this. So skip over with me to six, uh, chapter 6, verse 15. Paul says, don't you know that your bodies are parts of Christ's? So then, should I take parts of Christ and make them a part of someone who is sleeping around? No. Don't you know that anyone who is joined to someone who is sleeping around is one body with that person? So I want you to hear the tense of Paul's argument. He's not saying someone who has slept around ever in their life. He's saying someone who is engaging right now in this kind of behavior, this kind of lifestyle. It says, the scripture says, the two will become one flesh. Paul knows there's more going on than just recreation. The two become one flesh. It is serious and it is transcendent. Avoid sexual immorality. Every sin that a person can do, so what he's saying is every other sin that a person can commit is committed outside the body except those who engage in sexual immorality. They commit sin against their own bodies. Or, Paul says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Don't you know that you have the Holy Spirit from God and you don't belong to yourself? There is a sacredness to Paul's understanding of sex. So yes, God loves sexuality. God gives it to you for this reason. God gifts you with this. It is one of his greatest gifts and wants you to enjoy it. But God makes sex to be enjoyed within a certain context. Within a context of covenant. Within a context of marriage. This is where sexuality is meant to belong. Now, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says all these crazy radical things. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, men, you don't, your bodies don't even belong to you anymore. When you're married, your body belongs to your wife. Radical statement, a feminist statement for Paul to make in the first century. Your body belongs to your wife. Give her what she needs. Paul says, within the context of healthy, respectful marriage, women... The same goes for you in marriage, Paul says. And so he says, Christians are allowed to have as much sex as they want within this certain context, within this certain framework, because it's in that context that there is commitment and there is love and there is respect and there is a promise of forever. And that is where sex is designed to be enjoyed. Now, this is the big point I want you to hear, especially young people, the reason why it's important and it's best for you to wait and share and enjoy and explore your God-given sexuality within the context of marriage. It's not because of hell. It's not really because of pregnancy and STDs and things. It is because of this. It is because only someone who puts a ring on your finger and someone who makes a promise to you before God and before all of your family and friends to be with you forever and love you the way God loves you, only that person is worthy of this amazing gift God has given you. Your sexuality is worth that and nothing less. Your sexuality costs more than a nice dinner and a bottle of wine. All the studies indicate that right now in the dating scene, sex is expected after the fourth date. 
God's gift to you is worth more than four dates. It is worth infinitely more than just someone's temporary attention, someone's momentary embrace. No matter how strong his jawline is, no matter what kind of pants she's wearing, the gift God has given you is worth more than that. Infinitely more. If I could share with you all of the times I've sat with people who have struggled through the pain of their sexual past, it's issue number one or two that people come to us with as pastors. The pain of misusing our sexuality, it doesn't go away easily. It takes years. People get married and they think the wedding is this big reset button and it erases that past that you take forward with you. It doesn't. It always comes back. And we always deal with married couples who are struggling through one another's sexual past. As I said a few weeks ago, I've never sat with a married couple in counseling or even socially and heard one of them say to the other, I am so glad you had all that sex with all those people before me. You know, practice makes perfect. That is not how it ever works because we know it is a gift to be valued and treasured and saved for the right circumstances. Now, there's always pain and shame when someone treats their sexuality too casually. Now, to those who are single, I want to tell you that my heart is with you. I am full of compassion for the state of singleness today and for how long it's taking people to get married. And if my heart feels compassion for you, God's heart feels infinitely more compassion for you. And I'm not here to judge you or to tell you exactly how you should be living out your sexuality or not. I don't claim to know the mind of God. But I do want you to know that your sexual past doesn't define who you are today. Men, Your sexual conquests, they don't make you more of a man. Your sexual, using one of God's daughters, using her body and throwing her away doesn't make you more of a man. Doing that makes you less of a man and it puts you at risk of being an enemy of God. It is time to repent from that kind of thing. Whether or not you say she wanted it, it doesn't matter. What she was wearing doesn't matter. Because your sexuality is a gift to be treasured as well. And women, your sexual past doesn't mean you are any less worthy or precious now than the day you were born. Your past decisions don't determine what you're worth today. And to the men and women in the room, I'll just say, if you're single and you've been around, you've slept around, or you've explored your sexuality, I'm asking you not to let the shame of the past spiral you downward further into the shadows. Don't let those lies be told in your heads, men and women. God is compassionate, full of love and mercy. I'm praying for all of us. I'm praying for all of you as you explore these issues on your own in your uh, prayers with God. I'm praying that you would make a decision today to, from this day onward, whatever's happened in the past, to treat and care for your sexuality as the gift that it is, to be nurtured and cared for and protected and treasured. I know there will come a day, one day, sooner than you think, 
when the decision that you're about to make right now during this prayer that we're about to pray together, you will be glad and joyful and so grateful for the decision that you're making today. Would you join me in prayer? God, we thank you for the gift of uh, being created the way you made us. Thank you for being a God who creates us with passion, with love, and with expression. God, we confess that as a culture, sometimes we've gotten carried away. Sometimes we've missed the point of who we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to be living. God, we are sorry for the ways we've gone astray. Give us the strength and the courage as people, whether we're single or married or whatever our status is. Help us, Lord, to see this gift of sexuality as uh, something that is precious, something that is intended to be enjoyed within the uh, context of commitment, where rings and promises have been shared, where you have ordained a relationship till death do us part. For those who are struggling on the single scene and have been for years, my heart breaks and goes out to them, and I pray for your guidance, especially for those who are single today. God, help us all to have a greater and deeper understanding of this transcendent gift. We thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.